Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Stephanie Hill, and my family and I are covenant partners here. This morning, we are going to read from Genesis 21, 8 through 21. Please join me in reading God's word. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman and with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him of a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of this child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy, and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thanks, Steph. Well, good morning, church. I hope you are well. Uh, my name is Brad Hobbs. I have the great privilege of, of sharing God's word with you this morning, as, as Pastor Mitchell is uh, hopefully on a plane uh, across the Pacific Ocean headed back home. Uh, this, this church is, is, is quite a great place. I have the privilege of serving a hundred churches or so across the country each year and working with their leadership teams. And, and this one is, is particularly special. One, it's, uh, it's in San Antonio, which is home. Our, our house is here. We call this place home. And, but secondly, God's doing some amazing things in the life of this church. When you start thinking about uh, all the things that could go wrong in a church and all the craziness that goes on with the church, you're not going to find a place that cares more about, one, understanding and living out God's Word, and secondly, living that on mission. And so as you are, if you're visiting and looking for a church home, uh, this, is a, this is an incredible place. So come, be a part of community, to, to sit under the teaching of God's Word, and, and then also to live it out. I'm going to do a little cosmetic work here um, so that I'm not flapping um, Band-Aids make great nude uh, tape, if you ever need, need any ideas there. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get this, this strapped on here. But this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 21. And when Pastor Mitchell asked if, I, if, he, if I'd mind 
preaching and being with you this Sunday? I said, of course. Uh, he said, okay, I'll send you the text. It's Genesis chapter 21. Uh, I know the story of, of Genesis. I know that uh, most of it is Abraham. Okay, so you're the first part of creation, Abraham, and then Joseph. All right, and so I didn't really look at what Genesis chapter 21 was, so I began to study. And if so, if you want a concept of what Genesis chapter 21 is, it's like if you took a Jerry Springer show and put the Kardashians on it, like that combination right there. And so we're gonna have a good time uh, in God's word this morning, uh, guys. I'm I'm you know flap. Is there a handheld? Hooray! That's all good. Perfect. We'll do that instead of me flapping in the wind here because uh, nobody wants to watch a microphone dance. Um, so as we look at this text, if you've got a copy of God's Word, we'll, we'll look at Genesis chapter 21. It's, it's this incredible story. It really picks up in Genesis chapter 12. And so I'm going to kind of give you like the flyby from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 21. Before we do that, I uh, make a quick introduction. My wife was here in the first service. Uh, Kinley Brooke, who is our 10-year-old going on 30, is hanging out with dad. And uh, we have two more uh, that said, hey, we're going to kids' church, and then we're going to the park. We're not hanging out with dad. And so they left, uh, which I don't blame them uh, for that. But uh, Lauren and my wife, we've been married for 16 years. Our kids are 10, 8, and 7. Uh, those of you who have kids under the age of seven, it does get better. Uh, those of you who have teenagers, I don't care how bad it gets. It's really sweet in our life right now, so don't don't tell me. And so, but when we got married, um, we got some some marriage advice. There's always good marriage advice. There's always some marriage advice. We're like, okay, whatever. And so, uh, one of the pieces of advice that we got that we tried to follow was, hey, just never put a TV in your bedroom. Do anybody ever get that? Nobody, just us. Okay, a couple, couple of you, all right? Never put a TV in your bedroom. And we're like, okay, we're going to take all the advice because we're going to have a perfect marriage. We know exactly how this is going to work. And so uh, we didn't. Uh, but we, we had, when we got married, one of the wedding gifts we got uh, was a 29-inch flat-screen LED TV. And this is like when flat-screen TVs were cutting-edge technology, all right? Most of you still had the big box. We had this 29-inch flat-screen. It was awesome. It was like a 1000 bucks for something you could get for 100 bucks today. And so we... We watch this TV, and, and we're big college football fans. And so uh, on a 29-inch TV, um, the little scoreboard they put at the top right, you actually can't read it. And so you, you'd walk up, and whoever was going like to the kitchen or whatever would walk by and tell you what the score was and how much time was left in the game. And, and then so it was just perfect. It was wonderful. We thought we were living the high life with our 29-inch TV. And, and then we had kids. And when you have kids, the only thing that comes on your TV kind of in the shared space is like uh, Daniel Tiger, Bluey, all those like wonderful things. And so we're like, hey, we have got to get a place where like we could just watch like a grown-up show and laugh and not hear the theme song from some kid show. And so we took that 29-inch TV and we put it in our bedroom and uh, like 16 years later, our marriage is still okay. It hasn't killed us yet, all right? But we put this TV in our bedroom, and we kind of picked up this habit of, like, um, I'm a morning person, so I wake up at 5.30 ready to have, like, all the conversation and all the ideas flowing. My wife is an evening person. She liked to wait till 11 o'clock to have any serious conversation. And so anybody else have that dynamic at home? All right, there's a couple of you. So we came to a compromise. The compromise was this, that every night we would sit, we'd talk a little bit, and we would watch some type of like comedic drama. But the comedic drama had to be 21 minutes without 
commercials because I couldn't make it through like a 45-minute show. So uh, for the past 11 years, we've ended every night binge-watching one 21-minute episode of every show that we can find and watch. We're in the middle of looking for a new one, all right? We've seen all the common ones, so if you got any ideas, send them to me. But we would sit and we would watch, and there was something in that moment of like raising kids and trying to figure out adulthood and life that it was really nice to end our day just kind of escaping from the drama and the craziness of our life and laughing at somebody else's drama. Like, I know it's fake. I know it's a movie. But it sure does feel good for a second to go, hey, at least our life is not that crazy. In Genesis, from really Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 21, we, we see, like, one of those crazy stories. And so today, if, like, you know, hey, what, what do I take away from this morning? Part of it might be the encouragement that your life is not as crazy as Abraham's. When God shows up to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, his name is Abram. He's actually a pagan. He's not even a follower of, of Yahweh. He shows up to this kind of wealthy family, and he goes, Hey, Abraham, Abram at the time, I want you to take your stuff, and I want you to walk in this direction. And Abram, I guess, being a little adventurous, just goes, Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So they, they grab their stuff, and he obeys, and he, he follows God out to this area called Canaan. He gets married, he has his wife, and in Genesis 15, God shows back up to Abram. He says, Abram, I'm actually going to change your name, and we're going to make a deal. Here's the deal. I'm going to give you a child, and I know you're old, like you're super dirt old, but I'm going to give you a child. Your wife is barren. Don't worry. I'm going to give you a child. And that child is going to be the first offspring, and you're going to be the father of a great nation. It's going to be beautiful. Like, everybody in the world is going to know your name. You're going to have descendants as the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashores. And all, here's the deal. You're into the bargain. It's just let me be your God. It's not a bad deal. But years go by, about, about 10 years go by. And God still hasn't given Abraham and his wife Sarah a child. Just kind of problematic to be a father of a great nation. You got to at least have one. And in Genesis chapter 16, they kind of look around and go, okay, we were dirt old, like we are beyond dirt old now. There's no child coming. So they said, let's, let's help God keep his promise. And so Hagar, who is this Egyptian slave for Sarah, Sarah looks at Abram and says, hey, why don't you sleep with her? We'll have a baby that way. So Abram does. If you, if you, if you track this story, like everything in this story mirrors Genesis chapter 3. Like if you remember Genesis chapter 3, Eve comes to Adam, and Adam doesn't go, hey, wait, let's, let's, let's follow the Lord with the, the fruit. In this moment in Genesis 16, Adam, or excuse me, Abraham doesn't go, oh, wait, no, God's going to keep his promises. So he, he makes a baby with, with Hagar, and they have this child named Ishmael. And if you, if you think about it for a moment, in that context, having the child provided two things for a lady. One, it provided you economic security because now your, your child was going to be, have the, the inheritance of the father. The second thing it does, it provided you status. And in this context and culture, if you can imagine now this slave woman who, who has had a child, has more economic financial security than Sarah, and has more social status than Sarah. That doesn't settle well. 
And so it gets so bad that Sarah begins to like mistreat and abuse Hagar to the point that she grabs her baby in the middle of this story in Genesis 16 and goes, hey, you know what? We'll just go out to the wilderness and die because death will be better than surviving this. And so she goes out to this land and kind of wanders in the desert. And as she's wandering in the desert, literally an angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, most theologians, when you see the angel of the Lord, if it doesn't have a name, it's, it's Jesus, shows up and goes, Sarah, or excuse me, Hagar, what are you doing? I see you. I see your hurt. I see your pain. Now I want you to take your baby, Ishmael, and I want you to go back to Abram's tent. And I'm going to take care of you. In fact, Ishmael... Your son is going to have a, a nation named after him. He is going to be the father of a nation. And Hagar walks back from the wilderness into back into slavery and into Abram's tent. And for about 14 years, she endures this. So we pick up in Genesis chapter 21 at this moment. In verse 8, it says, the child grew. That's, that's not Ishmael. That's now Isaac. God delivered on his promises and gave Sarah and Abram a baby. They named him Isaac. Isaac at this point is about two or three years old, puts Ishmael somewhere between 15 and 17 years old. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking him. The one, Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of the slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. Verse 11, this was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up. He took bread and a water skin and put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. It's now gotten to this point where Sarah's going, hey, look, I now have the child of promise. I now have the security and status. Get rid of the problem that we created. And Abram's going, wait, that's, that's still my son. <laughs> and God goes, hey, Abram, Abraham, listen, send him away. It's okay. I've got it. So Abraham does something very unique. He, he grabs a water skin, and a water skin would have been taken a, an animal, most likely a sheep or a lamb, that still had four legs, and they would just scoop all the internals out of the lamb or the sheep. And because it was waterproof, the leather of the inside of the animal was waterproof, they would put water in it so that somebody could carry the, the water skin by both legs over their shoulders. So if you imagine like old school Huckleberry Finn with a, a knapsack on the back, this is just like lamb, four legs held over with about three gallons of water, and some bread. And this wasn't like Central Market bread that lasts for two weeks. This had like 24-hour expiration date on it. And the reason that this is so important to the story is if you actually go back about 18 chapters earlier in Scripture, in the story of Adam and Eve, when God has to send Adam and Eve out of the perfection of the garden, what dies? A lamb. He uses the skin of the lamb to cover them. And then in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham has to kill a lamb to make provision 
for his own sin, his own screw-up. And so he puts the water skin on, and he goes, and we see this, this idea that in verse 14, it, we pick it back up, that she left, Hagar left home and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes. And she went and, and sat at a distance, about a bow shot away. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. And while she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. Have you ever experienced pain that you didn't create, but somebody else created and you were the collateral for it? Like we, I told you we have three kids. Yesterday, my son uh, slammed his car fingers in the door. It's, you know, he's a kid. He'll get over it, right? And so comes to me about 30 minutes later and says, uh, Dad, back there, I slammed my, my hand in the door. And I said, well, I'm sorry. Are you okay? He goes, yeah, it just hurts a little bit. Ripped it off. And then I thought about the last time that his hand got slammed in the door because he's a boy. You know, those of you have boys and girls, boys get in trouble, they get hurt. Girls don't. And so in this spot, about, about six months earlier, his sister had slammed like just a little bit, the car door, because she was mad, and slammed his hand in it. Do you know the response from my little boy because it was somebody else's fault that slammed his hand in the door? Like, we were all out vengeance, anger, blood screaming, bath, like, Dad, she needs to die because she messed up and I'm hurt now. And oftentimes, as grown-ups, the pain that, that hurts the most is not the pain that we create or that we feel like are the impacts of our decisions. It's the pain that other people have created that we now have to carry. And Hagar here is carrying the weight of both rejection, pain, the loss of security, the loss of status. Not because it was her own fault, because Hagar and Sarah, or excuse me, Sarah and Abraham didn't think God would keep his promises, and so they acted on God's behalf. And here she is. She's sent out with her son, now 15 to 17, in the wilderness to die. So a couple of things as we think about just the pain that all of us, the, the trauma that all of us experience. And like part of the human condition, part of us getting to live in this wonderful earth together is we create chaos for each other. It's a wonderful gift. We do it at our work. We do it in our relationships. We do it in, in the way that we spend our money. We do that in the way that we treat our children, the way that we treat our friends. Like we create chaos and conflict. In the middle of this, there are a couple things that we have to be reminded of. One is 90% of life is outside of our control. Secondly, there is a God who allows our life to spin out of control sometimes. We see it in the story of Job. We see it in the story of Hagar. We see it in the story of Jesus. If you watch Jesus, he doesn't ride in on the fact that he walks straight to a cross and dies. He lives in this conflict where sometimes people love him and the same people hate him the next day. There are times where our life spirals that it's deeply painful, and yet God sits and allows it. The second thing that we see when we walk through this, this trauma of pain is that uh, people actually make pitiful provision for helping us in the middle of the pain. I love when, when you walk through chaos 
you're hurting, there's, there's a burden on you. That oftentimes people will go like, hey, let me just pray for you. And you're like, I appreciate that. I know, I just need you to fix it. Right? Like, I, hey, thank you for caring and sending a meal. It, it does feel a little bit better, but like, it doesn't actually solve the pain and the hurt. It just lets me know that somebody else is there. In this part, Abraham, he's trying to make provision. He sends them with a water skin and bread not near enough to make it through the end of the week. He's like, well, what do I do? Do I, do I take care of my son or do I send him out to die? And God telling him, hey, I've got this taken care of. He makes a little bit of provision and he begins to turn his face towards Isaac and Sarah. And as you walk through the middle of pain and the middle of trauma, you have to remind yourself that the the torment, the pain of your soul cannot find rest from anyone else who's experiencing chaos and trauma in their life. And unfortunately, that's all of humanity. That other people can't alleviate the pain, the burden, or carry the weight. The second thing is, is our temptation when we find ourselves being rejected in the wilderness is to medicate our own rejected soul. That our hearts are wired to need both and desire belonging and acceptance more than anything else. It's why you'll watch a teenager stay in, a, stay in a group of friends and be picked on and bullied, but as long as that group of friends accepts them and gives them space, they'll stay in that group of friends. It's why you'll see somebody stay at a job because, hey, my, my salary is, is matching this, and so I feel accepted because of this work, although my soul is dying. It's why you'll stay in an abusive relationship as long as you feel like you're accepted. You, I can be treated like dirt because I'm accepted. It's because God designed our life and our hearts to both want and need acceptance and belonging. And in this moment right here, we find that Hagar and Ishmael have been both rejected by Abraham and Sarah. And to be honest with you, if you remember Genesis 16, they had to feel like they had been rejected by God. Because God had spoken a promise over Hagar and Ishmael, and that that was he was going to get blessed. How does, the, how does the son of promise from God die? God has spoken over him. He dies? That's, that's not, God's not present. He's not working. We're out here in the middle of nowhere dying. And so what we have to remind ourselves that in the middle of those places is that One, other people can't alleviate. Secondly, we can't medicate the own rejection of our soul. Only God can fully heal the rejected soul. And so what we find in this text here is that as we look in a place where both our our hearts feel rejected, our souls feel tormented, and we're carrying the weight of pain, that Hagar actually shows us how we respond. In verse 14, it says, She left. Talking about Abraham's tent, and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. The reason she goes to the land of Beersheba, the wilderness of Beersheba, is in Genesis 16, when she runs away from Abraham's tent, she finds herself in the land of Beersheba. And in the land of Beersheba, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, God shows up and Hagar gives God a name. He goes, El Roy, the God who sees. 
And so what Hagar is doing is she's going back to the last place she saw God work. For, for 15 years, 16 years, she's been abused, manipulated, hurt, put up with the trauma, and she runs to the last place that she heard God make a promise. Verse 17 of Genesis chapter 21, God heard the boy crying in the wilderness, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? What's wrong, Hagar? We're dying, God. We've been rejected. Like, either somebody's going to kill us or we're going to die from starvation. That's the only way this ends. And God says, don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. In the middle of the pain and a tormented and a rejected soul, seasons of life where we all experience it, we must search for the past promises that God has made, understanding that it is the person who made it which validates it for our moment. That God in his word has spoken over 7,000 promises over your life. That we, we think we could pull them out. One this morning, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that even while we were still rejecting him, he would die for us. Which gives us to the place where that God would speak promises over our life before you and I ever knew we needed it. That he would speak them over your family. He would speak them over your church. The second thing that we see in the person who makes promises is that, that God spoke promises over you, not only before you knew that those promises existed, but secondly, before you ever needed it. That before God walks you into a place of heartache in the middle of the wilderness, that he has already made provision in that place for you. That people, resources, opportunity, and his presence have already been packaged together to go, when you walk in that place, I've, I'm already there. I've already provided. The third thing we see about searching from past promises is that God spoke promises over us before we could handle it. Before we could even handle the promises, he spoke them over us. And if you think about the time that passes, literally north of a decade from the time that he speaks a promise over Ishmael to the time that he shows back up. God's promises are not transactional. They don't need us to keep our end of the bargain. He doesn't say, hey, if you do this, in the Old Testament, it was the covenant. Abraham had a deal with God. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll make you a great nation. Same covenant that God makes Mount Sinai with the, with the Israelites and Moses. But after Jesus... After his death and resurrection, we see that the message of the gospel is not God speaks his promises to those who can bargain and keep up their end of the deal. The message of the gospel is that whether you are the rejecter or the rejected, God's love is so ridiculous that his promises are true for you. And so what do we do? What do we do when we, we search for the past promises of God? How do we respond to a love like this? The biggest thing we need to do is we have to see promises in the midst of the pain. 
Um, we, we as a culture don't, don't rest well. I mean, like truly rest. We, we typically stay go, 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 go. Um, and even when we like create time for like vacation and time off, it's, it's very difficult to just sit and shut our minds off. The vast majority of, of psychologists would go, we actually stay busy, whether it's on our, on our phone or our work or in relationships with hobbies, to actually medicate our soul from the pain that we experience. And what we do in that medicating process is that we don't actually find ourselves more alive, more full. We actually find ourselves more numb to the beauty of life. And so as we see God's promises, for many of us, oftentimes we hear those. That's awesome. We don't know actually what to do with them. Because the, the, the chaos and the desire of our life is to go, I just need to numb a little bit of the pain, whatever way I do that. So we, we medicate and we medicate and we medicate from rejection, from failure, from screwing it up. And what Jesus is about to unpack here in the story of Hagar and Ishmael is I don't want to just medicate your soul. I want to heal it, and I want you to be fully known. But in order to be fully known, you actually have to stop. We actually have to learn how to rest before the God who has spoken promises over us and has already made provision for us. So if you want to, I'm going to write down the acrostic rest. I'm just going to give you some notes as we prepare to walk out of here for Monday. What do we do when we see the promises in the middle of the pain? We must stop and embrace them. One is we have to remember our perfect provider. Psalm 121, David, the, the psalmist would write, where does my help come from? The maker of heaven and earth. That the person that, that offers both healing and love, whether you are the rejected or the rejector, goes, I actually hold the whole world in my hand. I've got your mess under control. So we, we remind ourselves. We let that wash over us. The second thing is we, we enjoy his powerful presence. Psalm 4610, to be still and know that I am God. That literally to, to take and activate the promises of God in your life, we actually have to sit with the God who made them so that he can allow them to take root and to flourish in us. And so we learn to stop. There's, there's no way to do this, like the old adage of like, hey, it's not about quantity time, it's about quality time. Like, there's no way to sit with God without quality time, but that takes a quantity of time. And so we must create space in the, the busyness of our mind and the business of our week where you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force myself not to, to medicate in any other way. With a task list, with laundry, with kids, with errands, with more emails. I'm going to sit with God who has spoken promises over my life. The third thing that we, need, we do in response is we submit to the patient potter. Jeremiah, the prophet, would describe God as in, in an image that he was the potter and that we are clay. And to see the, the reality and the beauty of God is that every moment that we walk through, God has actually ordained as a tool, not so that we get to just enjoy all the happiness of life, but so that our hearts begin to fully re reflect him. 
which means that both all the pain, all the rejection does not honor God. God does not enjoy watching us walk through pain. And yet he's strong enough, so aware of the pain, that he uses it like a potter, shaping our hearts so that we actually look more like him. So the, the goal of this life is just practice preparation to standing before him one day in heaven. And so he is, he is shaping our life through the trauma and the chaos and the conflict and the pain and the difficulty of circumstances to go, hey, I'm actually, this is not, this is not good, but I am so good that I can use every difficult thing in your life actually for your good. And so we, we, sit, we, we submit to the patient potter. The, the final thing here is we, we tell of his goodness. Psalm 145, we enter his courts with thanksgiving. We walk into his presence in verse 4 with thanksgiving. That the, the practice of following Jesus and resting in his promises is, is actually learning to start confidently giving thanks that he is exactly who he says he is, what he did in the past was true, that he's present now, and just go ahead and thank him for what he's going to do tomorrow. And as we do that, what happens is literally the power that the pain, the, the burden, the chaos that sits on our soul, that power actually shifts off of us and shifts onto him, and it allows us to sit back and rest and go, I don't have to figure out how we're going to live in the middle of the desert. God's already in the desert with us. If you notice the last part of this passage, this God shows up, and he actually shows Hagar a well. Not sure where the well came from. Not sure if it's still there, but the, the well is there to provide for them in the moment. And then Ishmael gets his strength, and he becomes a master bowman. Do you just remember real quick, how far did Hagar go so that she wouldn't hear her son die? A bow's length. I love the fact that God, just out of his crazy coolness and his artistry, would go, hey, you ran away so that you wouldn't hear your son die about a bow's length. And I'm going to make him a master bowman so that you always remember, Hagar, that when you thought your son was going to die, I had already made provision. So that every time he goes and hunts and kills, you are reminded of the fact that I took care of you when you thought everything was about to fall apart. And so what we get to do as, as, a, as followers of Jesus is we get to embrace in the middle of all of the pain, the, the hurting, the chaos, whether we created it or whether we were the collateral end. That God has already shown up. He has already spoken promises over you. That we get to sit and learn to rest over the promises. And then as God works and as God acts, he always reminds us that his glory is greater than we could have ever imagined walking through the midst of pain. And that one day, we get to stand with him and enjoy the beauty of life without any pain, any chaos, and any trauma. We just get to rest in his promises. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we love you. Thank you that for this, this, thank you that this world, although tragic, painful, has not limited you from being God in the depths of your love for us.
Lord, teach us to rest. Lord, help us to surrender whatever ways we medicate the, the pain of our own soul. That you would provide healing. Lord, help us to, to see that you are leading and guiding us through great successes and very painful valleys. Lord, give us a willingness to just submit, to sit with you, allow you to do your great work. Just thank you that when you wrote 66 books, you let us see the brokenness of Genesis chapter 21 and you you provided a map to go, this is, this is how I'm faithful. All of my promises are true. Just help us to embrace that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.